All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So this week, we are going to be doing something slightly different in that we will not be talking about Tales to Astonish number 44 in this episode because we have recorded an episode where we had Jeremy Whitley on as a guest on our show. Uh, and the reason we had him on was to talk about Tales to Astonish number 44 because he has written a lot of comics featuring Nadia Van Dyne, whose origins can be traced back to Tales to Astonish number 44. So that will be appearing in a separate episode that will appear later. So we will be talking about all the issues this month, except for that one. Yes. So we've had a lot of guest episodes. We've actually recorded three. One of them you have heard. That was our interview with Douglas Wolk, which was our previous episode. Uh, then we're going to save our interview with Jeremy to be our next episode. And we're going to discuss all of the other June 1963 comics this episode, just to break up our guest episodes. And then we have another special guest who uh, we have that episode in the can as well. And that one might show up soon. We're having a guest of Palooza, but we thought we would give you a week <laughs> off here where we would just do a perfectly normal episode. Now, this week, we have a turning point. We have the first time when I have been forced like a common peasant to go crawling on my knees to the Marvel Unlimited app. <laughs> because in my collection of CBRs and CBZs, there is an issue that is just not there. And in fact, I had no idea this issue existed until Steve, who is working for Marvel Unlimited apps, is like, uh, yeah, how about Strange Tales Annual Number 2? And I'm like, what do you mean? There is no Strange Tales Annual Number 2. It's not in my collection. And he said, yeah, there is. It had an original Johnny Torch Spider-Man story. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And so I went ahead and I looked on Marvel Unlimited and there it is. So I had to put up with that garish computer color that I've avoided so successfully <laughs> in the past. It makes my skin crawl reading comics on Marvel Unlimited with the computer coloring. And I vastly prefer scans of four-color comics. But there is no scan of that particular four-color comic anywhere in the world, as far as I can tell. I think the people who scanned those four-color comics had no idea that comic existed. There was never a Strange Tales annual number three, so there was never a sense that there was a gap there. But we're not going to get to that yet. Let's go ahead and go in alphabetical order like we normally do. Let's go and ahead. And there's no there's no Amazing Spider-Man once again this month. It is still bi-monthly, and this is its bi-week. Yes, and we haven't still decided if we're going to do a Sergeant Fury regularly yet, but that is also bi-monthly, so there is no decision to make this month. There is no Sergeant Fury. So even though there's a bonus annual shoehorning its way in here, we still just have five books today, partially because we have lopped off one of the books to be its own special episode. All right, so uh, I assume if we're going in regular alphabetical order, we are going to begin with Fantastic Four number 15. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. So it says on the cover, the Fantastic Four featuring the Man Thinker and his awesome android. Uh, there is a guy named the Man Thinker. So I I love the Man Thinker. I think he's a great villain. I think Lee has a lot of fun with him. And I think he's got a great look on his head. I think his head looks great. But Kirby had this thing of sometimes he would just get tired and he would go like, I can't come up with a costume this time. I'm just going to give him a green jumpsuit. And this is one of many Kirby generic green jumpsuited villains. Of course, I think the most infamous of those is the Red Skull, who also has a very iconic looking head 
and then just wears this entirely generic green jumpsuit when he's not dressed in his full Nazi regalia, which is just so lame. And I just consider well, it is a green jumps. It is a green jumpsuit with a swastika on it. You know, there, sometimes there's the- <laughs> no. Usually, Kirby would not draw it with a swastika on it. He oh, would really? just draw a completely generic green jumpsuit. Later, some people try to spruce it up by adding a swastika. So then we have the Man Thinker here on the cover wearing just his green jumpsuit, saying, "Let none of the Fantastic Four leave alive." The Thinker commands it, and Johnny is saying, "He's turning our own weapons against us. We have a chance." And someone out. A random passerby on the street is saying not only has the Mad Thinker taken over the Fantastic Four's headquarters, but he's beating them at their own game. So the Thinker calls himself the Thinker. It's only a random passerby that calls him the Mad Thinker. And then Ben says, just wait. Sooner or later, I'll get my mitts on you. Just wait. And you've got all the Thinker's men shooting uh, science fiction bazookas at the Fantastic Four. Yes, that are doing some kind of weird thing. Is it that's, oh, I guess that's... uh... Are the, is that the hallucinogen gas that we're going to be seeing later? That's <laughs> kind of what it looks like there. Yeah, so. there's. I think there's another name for the bazookas we go later. We'll get to that when we get to it. Oh, the vibra something? Yeah, okay. Yes. Right, right. Yes. All right. So, uh, yeah, let's get into this here. Um, as I was just telling Matt, um, I took more extensive notes than usual this time, but I might end up uh, abandoning them because I have found that when I go from notes too much, I can sound a little too canned. So it begins with the Fantastic Four flare gun shooting off from the Baxter building. Johnny sees the signal. He is on a date in a convertible with a woman named Peggy, and uh, he's finally... Yeah. I think this is sort of the beginning of the Johnny as serial dater theme. We haven't really seen him on any dates yet before now, have we? I don't think so. And I don't know, though, if he's really a serial dater. From this point on, I think we mainly see him with Dory Evans. Well, but he's with a girl named Peggy here, so well, he is right. on right. the mic. But right, but what I'm saying is that you know, obviously, he uh, she she is not going to put up with this much longer since she was uh, uh, you know already thinking you know oh, how many dates you've broken with me? And he's like, hey, baby, you know, I'm here for you now. And then she's like, oh, how I've longed for this wonderful moment. And then he sees the flying four up there and he's like, oh, flame on. Just, you know, hey, you can make your way back to the city. So um, I, I don't know if we see her again. But I think after this, it's pretty much just Dory Evans until Crystal shows up. I'm reminded of one time you called me in college and I had never <laughs> dated in high school, but I was now beginning to date in college and you called me up and I was making out with my next door neighbor in the dorm and I heard my phone ring and I went back and I answered the phone and you said like, oh, have I reached you a bad time? And I said, yes, I'm on the make. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It's which like- is... Then why are you answering the phone? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Well, the phone was an important thing back then. Like you had to answer your phone, but I was on the make and I'd always wanted to use that phrase and now I had a chance. Uh, So yeah, so Johnny is on the make here when he gets his signal. And then meanwhile, uh, Sue has booked a full day with some high-end famous coiffure to get her look redone. Then she sees the flare and she's like, sorry, I got to go. Turns invisible and just runs out of the chair. And the hairdresser is like, wait, you can't do this to me. I shall destroy myself. I'm just assuming he's French, but you know. Yes. And then we see that the thing is on Yancey Street and he's trying he's trying to take revenge on them for a picture of him in a tutu. And he's about to pick up and throw a bulldozer at him, but he sees the four. And so he runs off to join the team. 
Uh, even though that means that the Yancey Street gang is able to uh, think that he was scared of them. So they all return to the Baxter building, and they're all like, Reed, what are you doing? We all had important stuff. It doesn't seem like there's much going on here. And he's like, do you think I wanted to stop my work that I'm doing? Look, I was just starting to create artificial life. But that's not important right now. What is important <laughs> is we just got a call from the police that there are gangsters converging on the city or something like that. So yes. this doesn't seem like your typical Fantastic Four um, mission. Uh, but once again, I had forgotten how much of this flirting they were doing with the Fantastic Four working hand in glove with the police here and there, which uh, there was more of that in the early days than I remembered. So that was a little bit of what's going on. So then we see the thinker, and he's got his typical Rodan thinker pose there with his knuckles up against his mouth. And he is talking about it is exactly 12.42 p.m. They should be entering in one and one half seconds. And then one and one half seconds later, in come the gangsters. So the thing Now, when you're walking through a door, it's mm-hmm. very hard to differentiate one second from a half second in terms of stepping over the threshold. Like generally speaking, it takes more than a second to enter a door. So it's very hard to pinpoint within a half second when you entered, but somehow he's able to do that. Uh, I'm thinking it may be the moment the door opens. You know, yes. but one, but one way or the other, uh, this is something that uh, that Stan Lee will become more and more known for as we go forward of talking about. And at that precise same instant or, you know, exactly 30 seconds later and various things like that, you can get very specific on very uh, persnickety, minute uh, measurements of time. But especially this is associated with the thinker who, yes, this is the way the thinker will always talk. And I think it gives him a wonderful signature as a character. Yes. And uh, so basically he is a genius who uh, has computers that he uses and he has put basically all knowledge of everything that's ever happened into the computer. And then therefore, because we live in a mechanical clockwork universe, he can now predict exactly what will happen in the future. Uh, I think of this as the birth of big data here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so anyway, he's talking about his plans, about how he's going to take over New York City and rule it as a kingdom. And then all the uh, gangsters are saying, oh, but what about the Fantastic Four? And they have all these stories they're telling about exactly how each one of the Fantastic Four is going to uh, give him a swift kick if he tries to do this. Um, of course, nobody's talking about what will Thor do, what will Spider-Man do, <laughs> what, will, you know, what will Iron Man do. This is not important right now. Yes. So. In each book, they're still sort of ignoring the existence of the other books. And it's worth pointing out here that the gangsters do have Tommy guns with big round barrels on them. Jackerby, again, still sort of has a mind stuck <laughs> in the 1920s when he was a child. And I were gangsters still using Tommy guns with well, big I, round barrels at this point in 1963? Well, I mean, fully automatic machine guns had been made illegal throughout the country shortly after the, Val- the Valentine's Day massacre. They would exist, I'm sure, but they uh, generally were not easily able to be made, transported, used, all that sort of stuff. So no, I don't think so. Yeah, but so, in Kirby, as far as Kirby's concerned... 
It's still Tom, all Tommy gun all the time. So after the thinker explains how he uses computers to predict everything, he then goes through and talks about some examples of various heists that he's done in the last year and these little coincidences that weren't actually coincidences, but that were things that he knew was going to happen and was able to use them in his planning. <laughs> he says... Just as it was part of my plan to know that an organ grinder's monkey would accidentally start a fire in this deserted shack, thereby burning some valuable papers which contained enough evidence to send me to jail for years. That's why I am the thinker. So his computer was able to predict an accidental fire created by an organ grinder's monkey. So he is. Computers are pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's fortunate that we're living in the age when our computers can do just this precise sort of thing. Unfortunately, lots of computers around these days, very few organ grinder monkeys. So the, <laughs> we, we missed our window in terms of being able to predict the actions of organ grinder monkeys with our computers. I, I think I would gladly trade some of those out these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Things are going. So then meanwhile, he says, you know, look, I've got plans for all the Fantastic Four. Don't worry about that. And then one of the weirder things that has, ha- that has come up in Fantastic Four, and that's saying a lot, yeah. is... Um, apparently Johnny and Sue have a country cousin who is also a freakishly tall giant who comes into town with his freakishly short companion. So Bones, this country cousin, comes into Johnny and apparently Bones runs a circus and says, hey, Johnny, my circus is not doing so well. Could you come and join the circus to be able to help me out? And he's like, boy, join the circus? That sounds peachy. Then meanwhile, we see that uh, he has arranged for some businessmen to be suggested that Mr. Fantastic might be a good R&D exec for them. Then the thing is offered a job as a professional wrestler, and Sue is offered an acting gig. And all of these things, once again, are things that the thinker somehow put into motion and or knew was going to happen and was able to tweak things somewhat to get them to turn out the way he wanted. So at this point, all the members are thinking, oh, well, there's all these other more interesting things I can do, and all these folks are getting on my nerves right here. So they all take these opportunities they've been given and head off their separate ways. Yeah, but they make it clear they intend to get back together. This is just a little, everybody is going to do some moonlighting. Well, right, right. And they, they uh, what does they say here exactly? One of them says, oh, we'll get together again after a while. So uh, yeah, they're, they're, just, they're taking a break. They need a vacation from each other, which honestly, they probably do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then meanwhile, the thinker uh, already knew that this was the moment to go ahead and get rid of the Fantastic Four. Because he knows that there is an asteroid which is heading for the Earth. Now, it is not a dinosaur-killing asteroid, but neither is a kind of asteroid that will just burn up in the atmosphere. It is one that is big enough that it will land in the waters just outside Manhattan. And enough to cause a fair amount of something akin to an earthquake and knock out a bunch of power and do some other infrastructure damage. Which the Mad Thinker uses as his cue to enter the Baxter building and start raiding all of Mr. Fantastic's stuff, including his notes and weaponry and everything else. So, and he specifically Mm -hmm. talks about finding the notes about the experiment that Reed had been doing earlier about creating artificial life. Oddly enough, that was not just a coincidental throwaway line. That was actually setting something up for later. Who could have guessed? So then meanwhile, we have a couple of pages where we see all four of the members of the team growing either bored or disillusioned with the 
trips that they've taken to go do other things. And so they all converge back at the Baxter building, only to find that it is encased in some kind of crystal. So they show up. Mr. Fantastic thinks, oh, maybe I can stretch up and find a weak spot. The thing tries digging under the foundation. But then they notice, hey, wait, nobody else seems to notice there's anything weird going on here. So then the thinker comes out. He's like, no, I've used a hypno ray so that nobody knows anything weird is going on which seems like an odd thing. It doesn't seem like something they would need to do, but, you know, what you going to do? Then he says, but you know what? I have plans to defeat you. I will go ahead and allow you into the building where I will take care of you. They go in, and here's where the uh, gangsters are using the Vibra guns uh, that yes. were also of Reed's creation. Thing goes ahead and tears some steel up to wrap them up. They then have to get up the elevator shaft in a somewhat humorous sort of way. And as they get up towards the top, they then end up having some gas come at them, which is apparently another invention of Reed's. And I mean, I don't know how to describe this other than a hallucinogen. Is that? Yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, no, they say they, what do they call it? They call it a hallucinogen, said, don't they? they I, say, crea- I created it to use against enemies to defeat them without harming them. It affects your sense of balance and of vision. It makes everything look distorted to you. And there's and this. Then, and then you have a gorgeous panel, uh, just a, you know, Kirby just having a lot of fun here at the top of page 17 with yeah. the thing with a huge body and a huge head and tiny body and everybody is all distorted and it is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I just, you know, figured that, you know, right here in the early 60s, you know, to suddenly have this hallucinogen gas, it's a little bit like, okay, well, you know, these are the times, I guess. Then meanwhile, uh, they, they disperse the gas uh, by basically turning Reed into like a rubber band propeller airplane sort of situation. <laughs> they twist right. him up and let him spin to uh, disperse the gas. So they come in and once again, the thinker just keeps on being like, okay, yeah, no, I calculated that was going to happen. So then then, you know, don't worry, we got the next thing. So then in comes the living android, which Reed recognizes is based on his original notes. Absolutely gorgeous piece of design from Kirby. Really freakish, huge gray walking humanoid lump with this head that looks kind of like a hamburger. And <laughs> it is a design that later Dan Slott, when he's writing She-Hulk, will get a lot of good use out of Andy, the awesome android. And will turn him in, will really humanize the character as he breaks free of the thinker and gets an internship at She-Hulk's law firm. <laughs> I, I've not read any of that. <laughs> That's oh, interesting. Dan Slott's She-Hulk is well worth reading, but Slot is really just taking advantage of Kirby's wonderful character design here. Yeah, well, actually, uh, the living android's head actually reminds me of a needed eraser, which yes. is something that, you know, Jack may have been using a lot. I almost wonder if that's sort of his inspiration for that thing. So he's able to, so the living android is able to create a hurricane force wind to blow out Johnny's flame. He then is able to imitate things Rocky Hyde. uh, But since he's larger than the thing, then he's able to overpower him. So then Reed says, I'm going to tackle him alone. He's my responsibility. Stay behind. And Sue's like, I'm not going to let you do this on your own. So he says, okay, well, get invisible. Then he gets in there and wraps up the android and then is able to tell her where basically an off button should be based on, because this was based on his notes. And they say, um, you did it, Sue. Your sensitive touch knocked out the android. And then uh, the thing says, lucky for us that Sue was here. My fingers are too blunt and couldn't, and you couldn't free yours long enough. And the android would have seen the torch and kicked him away. So I think that, that uh, 
that Lee, Lee and or Kirby are being a little bit more conscious of trying to make sure that that um, Sue doesn't seem like just a fourth wheel on this yeah, thing. Yeah, very much. Um, and congratulations. Yeah, what, I, no, I would not congratulations. Like you just, I one of my perpetual pet peeves is people using fifth wheel incorrectly often it'll be like oh those two hang out together so well and then the third person wants to hang out with them that person's really like a third wheel like but third wheels are good and fourth <laughs> wheels are good and the phrase is fifth wheel so even if you have two people hanging out and the third person isn't welcome that person would still be referred to as a fifth wheel because no vehicle needs a fifth wheel and then but people say third wheel or sometimes fourth wheel and those are not Correct. So yes, I guess we're saying that she is a fourth wheel instead of being a fifth wheel. Yes, as case. well she should be. Uh, so then, meanwhile, the thinker is still like, yeah, okay, no, this is all still going according to my plan. No problem. I I knew that was going to happen. Um, and so now I'm going to do the thing that actually will get you. So I'm like, so if you knew they were going to defeat all this other stuff, why do you do it? Why didn't you go right for the thing that was going to actually be the knockout punch? I don't know. But he has gotten some antimatter projectiles of some sort from Mr. Fantastic and is going to finish them all off at precisely four o'clock, as he planned. And then at that very moment, as he is about to pull the trigger, the thing fritzes out on him. And it turns out... The thing, no, well, be clear what you're saying. Sounds like you're saying the character of the thing. (laughs) Yes, that is a problem. The uh, antimatter weapon uh, fritzes out on him uh, at precisely four o'clock. And then Reed explains that he basically had a failsafe built into his lab, that uh, there's a bell on the bottom floor that Willie Lumpkin, their mailman, has been uh, in, has been asked to ring at precisely four o'clock in order to disable all of his weaponry. And that's why they were able to stop him here. But I'm like, the one thing I don't get is how did Reed know that precisely four o'clock would be the right moment to turn this stuff off? You know, I, I <laughs> he's, he's a thinker himself. I guess so, but couldn't he have done that earlier and then not had to, you know, fight the living android? I don't know. But uh, anyway, so then they're talking about how, ah, what I didn't take into account was the X factor, the human element. And of course, that's almost all that's going on in a city is the human element. So I don't know (laughs) if you weren't taking that into account. Anyway, one way or the other, (laughs) they they defeat the thinker. And then he's like, I shall plan next, you know, next time we're different. I shall plan for the X Factor 2, and then nothing will foil me. And uh, one of the cops says, what makes you think there'll be a next time, fella? Well, of course, it's because of the comic book, so of course there'll be a next time. Anyway, yes. uh, so there we go. There's uh, there's my attempt at a uh, quick summary of what's going on, and I didn't even look at my notes at all. So once again, we've got, you know, we've talked before about how the storytelling is just so packed in these early issues, and we keep getting issues where it's like, well, later they'll repeat the story in a six issue story or a longer story. And I think this is a key issue for that because the whole idea of the FF go their separate ways and take up other jobs is very famously later a 12 issue storyline where they do the same thing from issues 188 to 200. And here you've got that whole story packed down into just a few pages. We also, when I'm reading Marvel Comics to my son, we just got through maybe the lamest Lee Kirby epic they ever did on Fantastic Four, somewhere around issue 70, where you have this four, this interminable four-issue epic where, once again, the Mad Thinker takes control of Lee's lab, and it's stretched out over four issues, and once again, he's got a giant android, 
And it is a very lame story. And here they get it all done in one issue. This is an amazingly compact and just delightful issue. Yeah. One thing you can certainly say about these early Lee Kirby issues, they cannot be called turgid. No. <laughs> they, are, they, they are a thrill a minute. Yes. It's just packed. And the idea of getting to enrich the characters by seeing, you know, I always say in my books that we have to know what the characters would be doing if they weren't doing this. They have to be breaking other plans to do what they're doing here so that they can be fully realized, fully humanized characters. And we get to see that wonderfully here. We get to see what they would all sort of rather be doing than being in the Fantastic Four and then seeing how that's ultimately not as satisfying to them as being in the Fantastic Four. And it really enriches characters. I think it's just delightful. And I love the scenes of them each realizing that these other pursuits are somewhat unfulfilling. And you've got Reed trying to be all stretchy at his lab work. And they're like, we don't do that here. We're serious people. And he's like, oh, man, I'm just being in my own lab. Yeah. Well, and and but uh, one of the things I was thinking, though, is that the thing does go back and do some wrestling years later. Yeah. When he leaves the Fantastic Four in the mid 80s for he spends some of that time he's away uh, in some what is it called? Unlimited class wrestling, like basically super powered wrestling of some sort. Uh, So, yes, they they, uh, John Byrne goes back to that. Well, so uh, there we go. Anything else you have about this issue? Nope. I thought it was a fun issue. I thought it was it was not surprising that later they were able to unpack this issue and get many dozens of comics out of retelling this same story in slower ways. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot here you could accordionate yes. <laughs> or telescope or whatever you want to say. I, I like accordionate, though. All right. So do you want to uh, take the uh, summary part of Journey into Mystery number 93 here, or do you want me to do it? I'll do it. Okay, Okay. so Journey into Mystery number 93. Even the Mighty Thor is forced to obey the sinister commands of the awesome radioactive man. Radioactive being a hyphenated word. And then he is facing a green guy with a cool-looking look who's saying, throw away your cursed hammer, Thor. You have no choice. You are my slave. And Thor is going, I am your slave and throwing away his hammer. And then once again, we have a random bystander in the back yelling, without his hammer, Thor cannot stop the radioactive man. We are all doomed. So... Once again, right away on the cover, we have yet another Thor villain without a consistent thing. And (laughs) if you have the power of radioactivity, that would give you all sorts of amazing abilities. One ability it would not give you is hypnotism. Well, according to the inside, it does. So there you go. Check and There is nothing hypnotic (laughs) about radiation. And we have a villain without a consistent thing already here on the cover. So then we look inside the book. It plot by Stan Lee, script by R. Burns, once again, Robert Bernstein, and art by Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers. So Kirby is back. Kirby. Not for good, though. There's at least one more Senate penciled issue coming up. No, Kirby is back for just one issue. So right. Kirby is not back on the book permanently. He comes back just for one issue to create another memorable character. And this is a book that would later be one of the main books Kirby was associated with, but he has left it behind several months ago, about six months ago. And now he comes back just briefly. And it's always good to get some Kirby pre-Coletta art on Thor. And here we get another nice surprise, which is another another pre-Coletta Kirby Thor issue. So then we cut to India, where India and China are at war. Was this a thing? 
I mean, I, I think there have been border skirmishes, um, you know, that are probably just not big enough for us to hear much about. But I, I think there have been border skirmishes off and on for a while. So, I mean, that, that's what I was reading this as, you know, not that they were necessarily at war, but they were arguing about exactly which mountain ridge their uh, their countries ended at. Uh, by the way, I do want to point out that on the splash page here, one of the random bystanders says, great guns, Thor is done for. And we've actually got quite a number of different uh, comic booky exclamations like that this month. Uh, I've made some notes on some other ones we've run across that we're going to run across as we go forward. Yes. So then we're in India and, you know, I had a right wing conspiracy theorist boss at Papa John's who I loved and who was <laughs> who was a delightful person. And but he was always convinced that India and China were about to go to war. And he was he was saying, like, this is the great hidden secret of the world is this upcoming war between India and China. So I feel like maybe this is something where sort of rumored to be true more than was actually true. So Don Blake is assisting as a surgeon. Then, of course, when the commies attack, he becomes Thor. He takes all of the red Chinese tanks. He chains them all together, throws them all over to what he calls the Hindus, to the Indians, and says, you can just paint over the little red stars on these things, and you'll have your own tank army now. Says, but I'll also make your tank army, your new tank army useless, because I will destroy the mountain pass so that no one will ever <laughs> be able to go through it again. The Chinese are pissed. The Chinese are like, we need to go ahead and deal with Thor once and for all. They go home. They talk to a scientist named Chen Lu. I got to say, we have the horrible piss yellow coloring on all the Chinese characters, which is awful. Yes. But the actual facial features from Kirby are not so bad. Not so exaggerated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they look a little bit ugly, but then almost any villain that he's going to draw is going to look ugly because that's what villains are supposed to look like. But he does not, they do not look particularly racistly ugly. Although, once again, you know, I always with the caveat that, uh, you know, as a white middle-class American dude, it's uh, not really up to me to decide what uh, looks acceptable and not in that case. But yes, <laughs> that, that said, so. in my opinion... <laughs> so then Chen Lu goes back to his converted Buddhist temple where he's assisted by these robots who have these great sort of... Oh, they're beautiful. Of, what are the names of uh, the terracotta the terracotta men in oh, isn't Beijing? It isn't it just the terracotta soldiers? In, in yeah, that? terracotta warriors, terracotta soldiers. And he's got these sort of robots that have similar headgear to the terracotta oh, th those warriors. Those are beautiful. I, I love... The, I Definitely in my notes, I was like, these things are awesome. Yes. So then he subjects himself to radiation. He becomes the radioactive man. He destroys his own lab so that it can never be repeated. He then has the commies shoot him in a torpedo to the American coast where he melts the torpedo with radioactivity and attacks New York. People try to shoot him. He melts the bullets with radioactivity. Again, we have covered this with Johnny Storm. I don't think it would necessarily be make you any happier to have melted bullets being shot at you than unmelted bullets. But he has no problem with it. So then we cut to Don Blake. So just as with, it will always be a little <laughs> bit unclear exactly what sort of law that Matt Murdock, Daredevil, practices because he handles a lot of different kinds of law throughout Marvel Comics history. It's likely going to be unclear, unclear even within the bounds of this very issue, exactly what sort of medicine Don Blake practices. Because here we have Don Blake. 
he is in surgery. He is in an operating room. He is doing surgery. He cannot be interrupted even to stop the radioactive man. Finally, he's done with surgery. He goes and he fights the radioactive man. And unfortunately, the radioactive man, like all great radioactive men before him, has the power of <laughs> hypnotism yes. and forces him to throw away the hammer and then just leaves him there going, I'm sure you'll just sit there hypnotized forever. I'm going to leave you. And then, of course, Thor then becomes Don Blake. This wears off the hypnotism. The radioactive man comes back going, what happened to Thor? And Don Blake says, yeah, he he ran that way, uptown. And radioactive man says, good, Thor won't get far in his hypnotized condition. And without his hammer, he's helpless. At this point, Don Blake, whose hair color has changed a little bit, goes back to his office. Jane is, of course, once again, deriding his lack of masculinity, says, how can you work calmly in your lab when the radioactive man is running amok in the city? Uh, then Don Blake says, well, there's nothing I can do about it, Jane. For me, it's business as usual. She thinks, if I go to be a million, I'll just never understand what makes Don Blake tick. So then Don goes to his lab. Now, it's my understanding that surgeons don't have labs. That generally speaking, <laughs> if you're a surgeon, you know, there's even a distinction. People who are not doctors or surgeons don't really understand the big distinction between doctors and surgeons. Doctors don't really think of themselves as surgeons and surgeons don't really think of themselves as doctors. And certainly surgeons don't have research labs, but he does. So I was thinking instead of a research lab, it'd be like, you know, blood labs, you know, so, so like, you know, if you go to the if you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, we have to take some blood to run some labs that, you know, it's like instead of having a separate office, you would outsource it to this is what you would have here. Even so, that doesn't make any sense for what we're about to see. There are so many questions on this page, but I'll let you take over. I'll interrupt again in a few minutes, I'm sure. So he finds his hammer at the bottom of the ocean using this gizmo. He goes and gets it. And then we have this very sort of disappointing finale when he literally defeats the radioactive man in two panels. He finds him and is like, yep, so much for you, radioactive man. I'm going to create a tornado. I'm going to whisk you all the way back to China with a tornado where you will land and explode in a nuclear explosion. They go, behold, <laughs> an atomic explosion. Can it be? There is only one answer. Even the radioactive man cannot defeat Thor. We then go back and, of course... Jane is mooning over Thor. She says, imagine while you were doing routine work in your lab, the mighty Thor saved us all. Sigh. And of course, Don Blake says, well, Jane, you know how it is. We can't all be heroes. And so yeah. a tip going into a Thor story. Yes. Uh, now, I, I want to go back to page 12 because there is so much going on here. Okay. So <laughs> on panel number two, in comes Don without his cane. And, you know, Kirby is making it clear that he is not very steady on his feet without his cane. You know, he looks kind of hunched over and kind of unsteady. But Jane does not notice that, hey, here comes my somewhat disabled boss, and he doesn't have his cane on him. And then she, he goes into the lab, and yeah, you were like, oh, he uses this gizmo. No, he creates the gizmo. This is like... Tony Stark or Hank Pym level techno science hero stuff that he's doing here. He says, after an hour of frantic electronic experimenting, ah, I'm in luck. This x-ray type device can monitor any area within 10 miles. So he's now got some kind of detectoscope that can see anything within 10 miles that he built in two hours in a medical lab, which <laughs> once again, I, what kind I, of doctor is he? You have to wonder. Yeah. And then, and then, and then on the bottom of the page, once he's figured out where the hammer is, we see him about to jump into the river and a Rolls Royce is in the foreground, implying that he got there in that Rolls Royce. And my question is, does he drive it himself? 
Does he have a driver? If he's got a driver, who is it? And why have we never seen or heard of the person before or after? And wouldn't they notice him jumping into the river and Thor coming out? And if he does drive it, where does he park it? What's you know, I'm like, so many questions on page 12. So many questions. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, nice. also, uh, also we have Thor uh, shooting lightning out of his hands. Yeah. Like he's Emperor Palpatine or something like that, <laughs> which I, 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 I don't know. Do we ever see that again? We might. Uh, I know we've got. We, we have learned on this show never to say that we never see something again. Have we, though? Have we? <laughs> Have we learned that? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Anyway, yes, those are... Um, oh, oh, yeah. Then, uh, like I said, I took some notes uh, this month as to various sorts of... Um, exclamations that people have At one point somebody in a crowd says great guns and then blake i think it is at one point says holy hypos yeah <laughs> like, like holy hypodermic needles i guess i don't know but um or the yeah. hypo was a word meaning depression depression could be called a hypo so i don't know uh, yeah, I don't know. But one way or the other, that is uh, definitely remarkable. Uh, so let, let me just look through my notes and see if there's anything else. Ah, yes. And uh, Chen Lu's laboratory is in a, quote, converted Buddhist monastery, which I assume means seized by the communists uh, because, you know, religion and all of that. Um, right. Let's see. Oh, yeah. And at one point, uh, when he first turns himself into the radioactive man, he tells some of the uh, Chinese military that he's showing his power off to, says, I am now glowing only slightly so that you will not be harmed by my presence. So if you're radiating enough that you can actually see the radiation in the visible wavelength, uh, you're not safe around anybody. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just glowing a little bit. So you're, you're cool. No problem. Uh, anyway, I think that's about it. All right. So I think we are done with this issue of Journey into Mystery. So next, do we want to do Strange Tales number 109 or Strange Tales annual number two? Which one, uh, which one do well, you think is the next? Going alphabetically, I would say that Strange Tales number 109 would be next. Okay. So let's go ahead yes. and do Strange Tales 109. All right. So, um, you su summarized that last one, so I presume I'm going to summarize this one here. Sure. So, on the cover, we see Johnny Torch, or Johnny Torch, you, you said that earlier, <laughs> is that his name? Human Torch or Johnny Storm, one or the other, not Johnny Torch or Human Storm. There is a caption that says, Will the power of the mighty Human Torch be enough to defeat the sinister sorcerer and his, quote, imps from Pandora's box? Johnny is surrounded by these demon-looking things. And he says, they're all around me, and each has a different supernatural power. Meanwhile, you see the sorcerer in the bottom left-hand corner who has uh, male pattern balding and frizzy hair where he has any left, uh, opening a box and saying, go, my faithful imps. Go and destroy the human torch forever. So, so right away, mm -hmm. I love these imps. I just love the look <laughs> of these imps. And I love the look of them coming out of Pandora's box. So I'm just going to be delighted by this issue, which once again is, I feel like every time we get a Kirby issue, it's just a delightful bonus at this point. And even though Kirby has been showing up a surprising amount here in Strange Tales, and this is clearly a Kirby cover. One thing I got to say I like about these covers is we don't have the UPC box yet. You know, in mm. the late 70s, America starts forcing all products to put the UPC barcodes on everything, including comic book covers. And this is a beautiful example of a cover without a UPC code where 
it's all originating from the lower left-hand quarter, which which comics would not be able to, comic book art would not be allowed to originate from the lower left-hand corner again once the UPC boxes went in there. So now we start out with uh, the Human Torch apparently has gotten out early from school because of some teacher conference and he shows up at Fantastic Four headquarters like, hey guys, let's do some superhero stuff. And they're like, sorry, we're planning something for something that we're doing tomorrow when you're going to be back in school. So uh, you can't be part of this. You got to go occupy yourself elsewhere. There's a weird thing on the bottom of page two where Johnny is angry about something and there's a gun mounted on the wall behind his head, um, which I don't, I guess it's supposed to be some kind of science fiction gun, but still it just seems a little bit, (laughs) it's jarring. It's a little bit odd. Anyway, they say, sorry. Mm -hmm. Ben explains that they can't, they're not going to bring him along on this mission. Says, we'll be gone a week trying to make life a little tougher for the commies. So in the actual Fantastic Four (laughs) book, they don't spend that much time fighting commies. They did when they fought the Red Coast not that long ago. But even then, they weren't like going on a mission against the communists. There's having to be communists showing up at the same time they were there. But and this mission that we never get to see is some sort of anti-commie mission. So, uh, you know, that that's I, I think we found something for some modern writer to uh, to mine for more material from the early days of Marvel. So uh, Johnny is, you know, kind of miffed. He heads back and he's like, man, you know, I'm just sick of school. I just want to drop out and be a superhero full time. But then he's like, you know what? There's actually stuff I can do as a superhero here in Glenville. So, you know, there's a fire that he puts out. There's a flood that's about to derail a train and he's able to save the train. And then he sees a bunch of kids being chased off of the property of this old, you know, manor house uh, by an old dude with a bunch of big, violent looking dogs. And so he comes up and once again uses a fire lasso because that's how fire works to restrain the dogs from going and attacking the small kids. And Human Torch says, you know, hey, what are you doing? You can't do this this way. I'm going to stay here until you lock your dogs back up and let these kids go. So then he helps the kids get back to town and the sorcerer vows revenge. Uh, And he says that he has Pandora's box. And he makes clear this is actually literally Pandora's box, the one from Greek legend. But there's a part of the legend that we don't know, which is that after all of the evils were unleashed on the world, Circe of Greek legend uh, returns these, uh, the imps, as he calls them, back into the box. And And we will later find out, they will later declare that this is actually Circe of the Eternals. Okay. It was just played by Gemma Chan in the movie of The Eternals that just came out. And this will be considered the first Marvel appearance of any of the Eternals retroactively because they will say in that comic written created by Jack Kirby, at first that comic will not be part of the Marvel Universe and then it'll be retroactively added to the Marvel Universe. And then they're going to go, well, all those appearances of Cersei in mythology were actually Cersei spelled slightly differently from the Eternals, and they'll go, okay, and I guess that includes Strange Tales 109. So this will be very retroactively made the first appearance of the Eternals. All right. Well, I I had a note in here about that. I did not know that they had officially declared that this was indeed that Cersei, although I had 
uh, definitely a note here that it's like, hey, in the Marvels, in the uh, Eternals movie, there was that Cersei and she was supposed to be this, that and the other. But um, so, you know, this is something that Jack Kirby would come back to later. But I didn't know that they had officially canonized that that was the Eternals Cersei in this case. Uh, so thanks. So anyway, he goes down and finds Pandora's box. It is apparently locked with some sort of mystical lock. Uh, but then this finally, you know, his humiliation by the human torch finally gives him the motivation to go and figure out how to unlock Pandora's box. And so he then shows up at a bank and just uses one of the imps from in here, the evil of hatred comes out and turns everybody in the bank to fight against each other. Uh, and so then he is able to just rob the bank. And Kirby has a lot of fun with this. The panel oh, yeah. where they're all fight Kirby and Lee, or I should say Kirby and R. Burns, have a lot of fun with this in the panel where they're all fighting each other. It's like, you stupid punk, wipe that grin off your face. I've hated your guts for years. Then a woman is saying, bah, I hate blondes. I'm going to pull every peroxide hair out of your head. <laughs> and then you have the boss yell, saying, I hate office boys. And the office boy saying, and I hate bosses. <laughs> yes. Fool, nincompoop. Uh, try to steal my boyfriend, will you? I'm the strongest man in town. No, me. Yeah, they, they do have lots of fun with this. So then he goes in and finds, you know, these sacks that literally have dollar signs on them that he's emptying into his briefcase. And then he uh, summons the imp of hatred back into the box. Uh, we then see uh, that he has another imp of forgetfulness that he sends back in so that nobody will remember he came in and did this. They'll just know that... I don't know. I don't know what happened. We were just fighting and all the money's gone. So Human Torch shows up talking to the cops about this. Uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on. We then see that there is some sort of big high-end soiree with lots of people with jewels and such. And so he then uses the Imp of Sleepiness to go ahead and make everyone fall asleep. And he steals all their jewels. Then he uses another one that induces paralysis, I guess it is, that allows him to steal art out of a museum. By the way, Glenville has what at least seems like a pretty high-end art museum <laughs> and big high society soirees and all sorts of stuff here for basically a bedroom community for New York City. Well, so, I've always gotten the impression that this is kind of like West Egg from Great Gatsby. This is a Long Island commuter town that has a lot of rich people in it. Oh, yeah, probably so. So after the museum, he then goes and steals a bunch of furs and somehow ends up freezing the guards, I think. Is that with yes. a, what one of his imps is cold? I guess one so. One of my pet imps, cold, has also yes. preserved the fur owners by freezing them. So you know, supposedly Pandora's box has all of the evils that flesh is heir to or something like that, he said. So we've got the evil of sleepiness and the evil of cold. I'm not sure sleepiness and cold are actually evil, but okay. <laughs> so Johnny Johnny Storm is talking with the uh, police chief here in Glenville, and the police chief is like, yeah, okay, they all seem to have weird supernatural effects, but why is this all happening near Glenville? And Johnny Storm, the teenager, tells the police chief, probably because the criminal lives in the vicinity of Glenville. Then, you know, as though that had not occurred to the cop. And he says, with all these supernatural techniques used, the villain must be some sort of wizard. Now, oddly enough, this is not a clue that the villain is the wizard, True has already been established in here, but it does make him think the wizard, you know, 
Gasp! Suffering flames! Why didn't I think of that before? Once again, another one of these weird exclamations. So then he goes over to the sorcerer's house. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention earlier, this old cranky hermit uh, who was chasing the kids off his lawn with his dogs is known by the surrounding community as the sorcerer just because he lives in this creepy old house and he looks like a creepy old dude. So Johnny Storm shows up at the sorcerer's mansion and finds just all the loot just sitting in a room. Because that's what you do when you steal a bunch of loot. You just go ahead and hoard it in a room in your mansion. So uh, he then starts turning yes. uh, his various evils upon Johnny. I, I just love the look of the imp of sickness. Like, it's so creepy. And all yeah. of these imps are just gorgeous. And then you get to page 12 and there's two more imps. And each one looks so different from the others. The imp of foolishness and the imp of laziness both are you know, there's a real sort of Dr. Seuss quality to this issue where yes. he is really just being wonderfully imaginative with these imps. Yes, and, and I love how he uses the imp of laziness to make the bullets too lazy to get to him in with enough speed to hurt him. So the bullets yes. become lazy because of this. And he then reduces the cops to uh, laughing, giggling idiots with the imp of foolishness. He had doused Johnny's flame with an imp of flood or something like that earlier. And so he's all watery and therefore can't flame on. But then he's drying out. He's getting close to being able to flame on. And the sorcerer says, you may choose your method of death, basically. So he says, okay, let me die as I lived. Let me die of flame. He says, certainly, and he lets out the imp of flame. But of course, that then just allows him to power himself back up. And then he chases the imps back into the box, welds it shut, and then drops it in the deepest part of the ocean so it will never be found again. I keep on thinking, when is Namor going to run across this thing? Yeah. But then it turns out that the last imp that he was trying to release at the last moment was the imp of fear. And when Johnny sealed the thing up, uh, I guess a little bit of the imp of fear must have still stayed there with him. So he is now frightened to death and will never bother anyone again. Yes, so, a classic, uh, classic ending, which they haven't been doing as much these days, but was very common in the Marvel comics of a year and a half ago. We'll never have to worry about the sorcerer again, because from now on, he'll be too afraid to menace anyone. So then just in the final panel, Johnny is back with the Fantastic Four and saying, I could really operate without you slowing me down. So he's uh, he's getting a little bit of independence here as he uh, gets to be an older teenager. Yes. So, and presumably they have gone off and mopped up the threat of communism while off panel in this issue. So I think we've we've heard the last of communism in Marvel Comics. Uh, well, and I mean, who, who has ever heard of it again from that point? Yes. Okay. So as you said, a visually fun issue. Sorcerer is silly, but that's fine. His imps are beautifully imaginative. That's wonderful. And yeah, that's about it. Oh, and also suffering flames. Yes. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's just wonderful to get these surprise Kirby issues right. of Human Torch and this is just a delightful issue. I just think that Kirby just goes to town on these imps. It is just delightful. I think this is a wonderful issue. Okay, so, but now, if you were to believe my comic book collection, that would be it for the Human Torch this month. But when I was talking to Steve about, okay, what comics are we going to cover this month? Steve said, I assume we're going to cover Strange Tales Annual number two. And I had no idea, as I was saying at the top of this episode, I had absolutely no idea that existed because that is not in my collection. And you would never, because there was never a Strange Tale Annual number three, you would have no idea it did exist, but it's on Marvel Unlimited. I went ahead 
And I rarely use my Marvel Unlimited subscription because I hate reading computer recolored comics. But I went and I looked it up and sure enough, there it was. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at a little bonus Human Torch comic. And it's an spe- extra special bonus because it is supposedly written by Stanley. It is drawn by Jack Kirby. It is inked by Steve Ditko. I always love to see some Kirby inked by Ditko. And it is great to see that. Now, well, especially, especially a... because Jack Kirby is famous for being very hit and miss when it comes to drawing Spider-Man. And so yes. uh, oftentimes, because of that, when they had Spider-Man appear uh, and Jack Kirby had to draw him, this is not the only time we've seen Steve Ditko brought in to ink in order to make sure that Spider-Man wouldn't look weird. Yes, to make Spider-Man more on model. But I think this issue really puts the lie to the idea that Jack Kirby can't draw Spider-Man. I think that Spider-Man is pretty much on model. He's a little more robust than he is in the Ditko comics, but any artist in the world would draw people more robust than they are in Ditko comics. Ditko draws weird, spindly people. And he is, I think that Kirby acquits himself quite nicely drawing Spider-Man this issue, except for the cover where he does a rookie mistake. He leaves off Spider-Man's spider emblem off his chest. I I wouldn't (laughs) call it a rookie mistake in this case. That's a Kirby mistake. Kirby can never seem to remember that, that, that particular part of the costume. Also, I will point out that on the cover, this might be, and we may have missed one in the past, but this might well be the first appearance of the term, the Marvel Age of Comics. Yes. So we have on the covers The Amazing Spider-Man face-to-face with the Human Torch, and it says the long-awaited epic-length thriller is one of many wonderful features within these unforgettable pages. And then it says the Marvel Comics Group ushers in the Marvel Age of Comics. So this is our first annual. This is the first of a couple annuals we'll be doing here in 1963, but it's the very first one we're reading for this podcast. It just says on the cover, number two, date 1963. Of course, every time I read the date 1963 in any of these Marvel Comics, I'm like, Kennedy's about to get killed. But that hasn't yeah. happened yet, presumably. So we cut to Human Torch is doing all sorts of testing of his powers with Sue being in charge. They're presumably in Glenville. They then go inside and the Torch is reading about Spider-Man. Spider-Man getting some better press for once in a magazine called Live. Torch gets very, or maybe it's Live. The Torch gets very jealous and says, oh, every time I do anything, they just give credit to the Fantastic Four. I never get the kind of credit Spider-Man gets. We then cut now, to now, a... Now, th- this right here, I, I, have a, I was noticing that this sort of strikes me a little bit as like the Lucky Duck cartoon. You yes. know, where... <laughs> Tom, Tom, Tom the Dancing Bug. Yes, exactly. Where, you know, it's just the uh, the rich guy who's always fuming over all the lucky stuff that Lucky Duck, who is poor and destitute, uh, gets from being poor. And uh, this very much, you know, since Spider-Man is always getting so much terrible publicity, <laughs> that he's like, oh, look at this guy getting all this publicity. Why don't I get that? It's really like, dude, that's not... Believe me, you've got it better. Yes. So then we cut to an art thief called the Fox, who does a very clever heist of a Da Vinci painting. He decides to leave some webbing, just completely, completely, just willfully decides to leave some spider webbing behind to blame Spider-Man. Spider-Man did nothing to earn this. He is not a villain of the Fox. He is in no way a nemesis of the Fox. The Fox just decides, hey, you know, I'm going to dump on Spider-Man because everybody dumps on Spider-Man. 
Spider-Man. No, let, let, let me throw something in here. Um, one thing I wonder about is, uh, you know, Jack Kirby had worked in his youth for a publisher that he notoriously dislikes over the years named Victor Fox. Who, yes. um, and I, I'm sort of almost wondering if the Fox might be some sort of dig at or reference to uh, Victor Fox. But I, I don't know. It's just like speculation on my part. That's funny. Yes, that is possible. So then Spider-Man has been framed. He decides, I'm going to go find the Human Torch and get the Human Torch to team up with me on this. It's always then interesting when an artist has to draw Spider-Man making it out to the suburbs where, of course, he can't <laughs> swing on tall buildings. But Kirby acquits himself fine, showing various ways of Spider-Man to make it out to the suburbs. I think this he, is the first time we've ever had that how does Spider-Man make it to the suburbs thing, isn't it? I mean, I remember this being a recurring thing that would happen when we were kids. I think this might be the first appearance of it. Yes, but uh, so then he then shows up at the torch's house and is looking in the window just when the torch gets a call telling him that Spider-Man is on a crime spree. And then he's like, oh, it just so happens. I have Spider-Man right outside my window and we're going to fight. We then have a very good fight. They fight all over the suburbs. They end up in a swimming pool. They end up in a construction zone with concrete mixers. Spider-Man encases the torch in concrete. He then says, why did I ever come to this guy? He obviously hates my guts. He then goes back. It's funny. He doesn't go back to his own lab. He goes back to a deserted <laughs> chem lab, Carson Chemical Laboratories, where he makes a new sort of web fluid that has ice crystals in it. And then he comes back to fight the torch again. This time he's able to string him up because he has his ice crystals in his web. He finally convinces the torch he's not a bad guy. Torch decides to work with him. Torch goes to the police and figures out along with the police that the bad guy is the fox. He then flames up and puts in this guy in flaming letters, Spider-Man, let's work together. Spider-Man, and this is something that will be referenced again later, again, I think by Dan Sott, where Spider-Man is sending out his spider signal from the top of the Statue of Liberty. So, so how, did he sw- nice... how did he swing to the Statue of Liberty? I, that's a that's a trickier question. That is certainly a trickier question. Presumably, he took the ferry like the rest of us schlubs. They then have a bit of an odd thing where it's like, well, we've got some known hideouts of the fox. He was last seen in this subway station a couple of days ago. And they're like, oh, let's go to the subway station. Now, of course, normally you would be like, someone was seen in a subway station two days ago. You're not going to be able to go to the subway station and find them there again. But in fact, it works because it turns out he does have a hideout in the subway. So it does make sense. And but then they go to look for him in the subway station. And then there's a little old lady who asks Spider-Man, oh, could you hold my bag for me? And he goes, sure, I will. But it turns out the bag is filled with super glue and that sticks to him because the little old lady is, of course, the fox. The fox then runs away. He goes to his secret hideout inside the subway headquarters, which is, of course, reminiscent of the later Superman movie in which Lex Luthor has a subway hideout. They raid the hideout. He's gone. They then find another hideout of his underneath a wooden Indian, El Hempo Cigars. And he's (laughs) gone from there as well. But they see some people he's working with. They find out he may be in Central Park. Then Spider-Man. Again, this is... If we regard Kirby as the father of this issue, he is here having Spider-Man use his powers in a way that Lee and Ditko never would. Because he's like, all they know is that the fox is in Central Park and Spider-Man's like, that's okay, I've got Spider-Sense. I'll be able to use my Spider-Sense on the entirety of Central Park to figure out where his hideout is. And he finds it hidden beneath 
a drinking fountain somewhere in Central Park. And there, you do have a beautiful, again, showing Spider-Man swinging where there were nothing to be swing on. You see the steps leading down to Bethesda Fountain very clearly with Spider-Man and the Human Torch above. And it's nice to see a little bit of real New York in there. They then think they've lost the fox, but they see someone with a telescope out on the street and they quickly realize it is the fox. The fox tries to roller skate away with roller skates hidden in his shoes, but they stop him. They find he's got the Da Vinci rolled up inside his telescope and they take him away. So this is, they call it epic length on the cover. It's 18 pages, the longest (laughs) human torch story we've read so far. Shorter than your typical Spider-Man story, longer than your typical human torch story. And it's a nice little bonus. This is the first of many annuals we'll get. And this is our nice little first little nice bonus story. It's nice that it's Kirby and it's it's a fun story. And certainly this will set up a million stories. The rivalry slash partnership between Spider-Man and Human Torch becomes a major feature of Marvel Comics from this point on. And here we have it launched. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things for me. Uh, you were talking about Jack Kirby and how well he acquits himself on Spider-Man. I personally still think that he didn't do very good with Spider-Man's portrayal in here that, uh, you know, I think Steve Ditko did a lot of saving of him, but there's some stuff he couldn't really save. So there are a couple of different pictures of Spider-Man using his wall crawling abilities that just seem really weird and awkward looking. The middle of page eight, top of page four are both ones where he just looks really stiff and weird while he's uh, using his wall crawling abilities. Uh, I also do want to point out that on page four, we see that there is a Fantastic Four logo mowed into the front lawn of Johnny and Sue's Glenville home. Uh, (laughs) He's really leaned into the whole admitting he doesn't have a secret identity thing. (laughs) And he's got like a lampshade in his home that just has a whole bunch of fours in a pattern going all the way around it. yeah, yes. it's uh, <laughs> so. Uh, but then the other thing about Kirby not necessarily really getting Spider-Man is on page seven, Torch. Oh, and once again, odd exclamations here. Holy heat waves. I never saw anyone move so fast. As I told you, Junior, this is a big time. Your cornball tricks don't bother me. And then, yes, Spider-Man's fast, but not running Right. So he's just running around and then he's running through the woods, weaving in and out among trees. And it's just like, this is not Spider-Man. This doesn't, (laughs) this does not work for me. Yeah. So anyway, those are just a couple of extra little things that occur to me. And then there was the whole idea of, you know, the fox who is stealing artwork and impersonating other people. I do sort of wonder if it's just too perfect that Victor Fox was a... uh... Actually, one of the stories I've heard about Victor Fox and Jack Kirby is with Jack being called, you know, when Stan Lee dubbed Jack the uh, Jack King Kirby and Jack Kirby the King of Comics, that that supposedly came from when Jack Kirby was uh, a youngster, uh, still young in the industry, uh, was working in the Golden Age uh, for Victor Fox, I think it's Fox Feature Syndicate. He apparently was a uh, an unsavory boss who basically had like a bullpen room of very poorly paid young artists who he could boss around. So there were some stories about, about Jack Kirby trying to fool Victor Fox into thinking that corners that he was able to cut were actually get, adding value to his comics. But um, Will Everett also worked, or Bill Everett, I guess he went by, right? Bill Everett also worked with Victor Fox at the same time. And apparently Victor Fox would refer to himself as the king of comics 
as one of these publishers. And so whenever Bill Everett and Jack Kirby would bump into each other in their professional lives, they would do their little Victor Fox impression, like, oh, I'm the king of comics. And uh, that Stanley overheard this at one point, was like, oh, that's great, and used that to then attach to Jack Kirby, even though it was originally oh, Jack, Ker- Jack Kirby and uh, Bill Everett making fun of this publisher who fancied himself the king of comics. Right. That's funny. Yes. So maybe, maybe a little reference back with Fox, or maybe Jack Kirby had no idea that Stanley was going to quite trust. I mean, I guess Stanley usually scripts the Human Torch in Fantastic Four, and Stanley always scripts Spider-Man, but in the Human Torch's own book in Strange Tales, Stanley has not scripted it for a long time, but here we get a rare Strange strange Tales Human Torch story scripted by Stanley. Although, you know, with the use of Holy Heat Waves and some of the other, and Flamin' Fireballs, uh, those both seem reminiscent of Robert Bernstein and whoever the other uh, scripter was on some of this stuff. And so I almost wonder whether, you know, one of them might be at least a little, at least uh, helping out with this uncredited. But, you know, Maybe. I don't know. It could it could also be that, you know, Stan Lee was just reading these other scripts as editor and, you know, just ended up falling into that same thing. I don't know. Who knows? Okay. So my brief foray to Marvel Unlimited now comes to a blessed end. I can go back <laughs> to my four color scans and let's move on. We, w- this episode is already running long. I was hoping we'd have a short one to mix in with the, uh, with the interview episodes. Looks like that will not be the case. Let's go ahead and take a look at our, is this our final book? Yes, uh, it is because Tales to yes. Astonish is going to be covered in the other uh, later episode. Yes. All right. So do you want to cover uh, Iron Man here? I I think it's my turn. So let's go ahead and do it. Tales of Suspense number 42. On the cover, uh, we see Iron Man smashing through a wall. It says, hold your breath. Here comes Iron Man. See what happens when a deadly foe of Iron Man learns his real identity. And then you see a ugly looking man in a communist military uh, looking outfit saying, Iron Man, you blundered into the Red Barbarian's trap. This is your finish. And this does, to me, look like uh, Kirby inked by Heck on the cover, if I'm not mistaken. It does. Yeah. Um, and indeed, As indeed that is... the inside of the book will be. Yes, indeed. No, no, no. Uh, no, that's not true. The inside of the book is just Heck. Yes, yes, you were correct. But the cover does look like Kirby inked by Heck. Yeah, it does. So we start out with uh, Iron Man busting up a communist smuggling operation where they think they've just smuggled out a new design for an atomic weapon. Uh, But then it turns out that it's actually just Iron Man in the crate waiting to take care of them. Uh, Of course, the question remains, you know, how long was he planning on staying in that (laughs) crate? And, you know, (laughs) how how was that supposed to work before they decided to open the thing early? So um, they start trying to shoot guns at him, but then he uses his transistor power to supercharge an electromagnet in the harbor that goes ahead and pulls their guns up. Since they're holding onto their guns, it also pulls them with it. So now they're all stuck in the air, holding onto their guns that are stuck to this electromagnet. Uh, and I actually really, the art on those top two panels looks much more modern uh, than I'm usually expecting to see in a 1963 comic. There's something that looks almost Neil Adams or Kyle Baker or something with some of those. Anyway, just yeah. you know, Iron Man knows that these guys were working for someone called the Red Barbarian, who is somebody who is not 
Soviet. He They specify that he works for a Soviet satellite country, um, but he is under the thumb of the Soviets, but not a Soviet himself. Tony then returns to his uh, workshop and or to his lab and is then demonstrating to the American military a new disintegrator beam that he has. And he's talking about, oh, yeah, when we scale this thing up, it could just disintegrate entire cities in mere moments. And I'm like... That's horrifying. <laughs> That's not good we, at all. We had to destroy the village to save the people and something like that. Right, exactly. Uh, so then um, we then cut to the Red Barbarian who is literally eating a ham leg at his desk. <laughs> Looks like he's also gotten some wine and uh, maybe some bread on the table as well. But this is not the first time that we have seen a communist warlord who is just sitting there eating just huge chunks of meat at his desk uh, to emphasize what a barbarian this person is. And in this case, he's actually called the barbarian. So he's freaking out and beating up his minions. and Hurls his ham leg at one of his minions, <laughs> knocking him unconscious. Yes. And then in walks Khrushchev. Although they don't call him Khrushchev, they call him Comrade K at one point. Uh, but he's clearly supposed to be Khrushchev, and he, the Red Barbarian, is suddenly like, "Oh, oh my God, what, what? Oh, I, what am I supposed to do? I didn't know you were going to be here." I, and then it turns out, no, I'm not Khrushchev. I am the actor who is apparently some some uh, Soviet or communist spy who can impersonate anyone. So this is uh, essentially, I guess, a rival to the Chameleon. Right? Yes. <laughs> Isn't the chameleon also a, a communist spy, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, sure. I wonder I wonder if anyone has gone back and retconned these this as the chameleon in another guise, which which actually would make a lot of sense. So he then says he will disguise himself as Tony Stark and get into Tony Stark's uh, lab and steal any plans that are there. Uh, he then shows up. He impersonates a uh, set and a, a, like what looks like maybe a Texas senator to send a telegram to Stark to come for an emergency meeting in D.C. Then as soon as Stark is gone, the actor and some of his other spy minions show up. He's pretending to be Tony Stark and says, oh, no, my meeting was canceled. I need to get back in. So then he's able to bring his folks in with him and they find the blueprints for the new weapon and the actor finds proof that Tony Stark is actually Iron Man, but he does not share this knowledge with anyone. He wants to keep it for himself as an ace in the hole. At the bottom of page nine, there's a weird storytelling thing where I I assume that the that I assume that Don Heck uh, was implying that this plane that we see in the bottom left hand panel uh, is supposed to be the plane that has Tony Stark returning to uh, his lab, but the text says that's actually a private airliner that is being flown with the actor in it. So I, I don't know what exactly happened there, but it does seem to me like some sort of confusion took place. That does seem like a misconnect between Arburns and Don Heck. It really does. It really does. Uh, then, uh, so he comes in and finds, so Tony Stark comes into his lab, finds the uh, other spies that are there dressed up as American generals, uh, ready for him, and they try to shoot him. But of course, he's wearing a, quote, bulletproof vest, which is otherwise known as the chest of his Iron Man armor. So then he turns out the lights and is able to change into Iron Man extremely quickly. And he says, that blackout was Stark's signal to me that he was in trouble. And I see he wasn't exaggerating. It's like, so you're going to see the blackout, but you're not going to hear the 
gunfire and commotion. Oh, okay, sure, why not? We'll go on with that. So uh, the so Iron Man um, commandeers an American military missile or rocket, and this is not the first time we've seen this happen before. In order to get to whatever communist country the red the red barbarian is in more quickly, so we have a really weird panel at the top of page eleven where uh, Iron Man has strapped himself in in this missile. There apparently is an observation window, even though this, I don't think this uh, missile was ever intended to carry human cargo. And then his attache case is just floating in space in front of him. Apparently they strapped him down, but they didn't strap down (laughs) the suitcase. So then he lands, uh, and fortunately lands right where he needs to be in order to stop the car that the actor is in. He's able to tie the folks up and then shows up at the Red Barbarian's office in his Iron Man garb and says, no, this isn't Iron Man, I'm the actor. And of course, everybody's just having this dialogue in English, so there's no problem with him coming in, And because I, I don't think Tony Stark knows Russian or whatever, you know, Romanian or Hungarian or Mongolian or whatever uh, country this guy's supposed to just- be in. Barbarian. He just speaks barbarian. Yes, yes. So, um, which I believe is just literally bar, 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 right? Isn't that where barbarian right. comes from? It's the Greek. That is the origin of the word, yes. Yes. Um, so, whereas we would say blah, 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 the Greeks said bar, 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 and that's where barbarian comes from. Um, so, anyway, he comes in and says, yes, I'm impersonating Iron Man. Here is the suitcase with the plans in it. However, Tony Stark, genius that he is, put a time lock on this. And if we try to break the lock before the time uh, sequence is done, there's a miniature atomic bomb in this thing that will blow up. <laughs> like, wow, that's okay. It seems a little extreme. So then he says, it'll be able to, we can open it in four hours. So the Red Barbarian says, oh, okay, good. We'll see each other in four hours. And let's. Iron Man walk out with the suitcase rather than hanging on to it himself and saying, you come back here in four hours. So then uh, Iron Man releases the actor who then goes in to see the Red Barbarian. The Red Barbarian does not believe him that the other Iron Man actually was Iron Man and that he's been tied up. And he tries to save himself with the knowledge that Iron Man is Tony Stark, but the Red Barbarian won't listen to him. He's so enraged that he goes ahead and has him killed before he can even say anything. And then meanwhile, this is one of the earlier examples of Iron Man actually flying more than a short distance. He's actually going to fly out of the country uh, with this thing to the nearest allied nation. Yes, but they make it clear that this is a lot to ask of his stuff. They do, uh, but but it is a lot to ask. But, you know, it it is going quite a lot further than he has in the past. So anyway, um, there we go. Uh, Yeah. With the exception of Tales to Astonish, we are done for the we are done for this uh, this month. Yes. So this was I miss Kirby uh, having solo heck. I'm not as much of a fan of this is not a very good issue. (laughs) This is, you know, the actor is not particularly fascinating. The Red Barbarian is sort of a rerun of various communist villains we've already had. Having our first story in which somebody discovers the hero's secret identity, although of course ends up getting killed, gives it a little bit of novelty, but not enough. Yeah, I mean, this is basically take the executioner, not Scourge, but the uh, communist dictator from South, from the uh, from Latin America, and put it together with the chameleon and put him against Iron Man, and you've got this issue. Yeah. It's uh, it's rote. It is familiar. I would say, generally speaking, Iron Man is going to be the weakest book of the 1960s. I don't think it's a book that anybody who is working on it particularly loves. And it is this is an unfortunate predictor of a lot of Iron Man stories to come. 
So, well, I mean, you, do you really think that this is weaker than the Ant-Man stories? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I just, I'm just not a big Iron Man fan. And oh. I think that, you know, we're about to, in next week's episode, we'll talk about the introduction of the Wasp. I think the Wasp is absolutely delightful. I certainly prefer Ant-Man and the Wasp stories to Iron Man stories. All right. Fair enough. Okay. So anything else we have to say today? I don't think so. We've got a long episode here. All right. Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, so much for so much for knocking it out quickly. Like I said, this is what happens when I make notes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I should just not make notes. I need to wing it a lot more because otherwise it just gets a little long. But then I'm not like, oh, I forgot to say that. Uh, right. But yeah, uh, probably that's better though than, uh, than having things wrong. Okay, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And uh, you know, one thing I'm wondering about is, you know, some of our some of our listeners out there, I'm curious about. Like, you know, like I said, we've got this one listener in Moscow. We've got, I think, multiple listeners in Osimo, Italy. Ha. Huh. Yes, O S I M O, Italy. Um, and that's not the only one in Italy. There's some pla- some other places in Italy too, but that one has more than the others. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about who these people are that are out there. Feel free to drop by the Secrets of Story blog and uh, let us know something a little bit about yourself or go on to iTunes, wherever else you download your stuff and leave us a bit of a review. Uh, we would very much appreciate it. I'd like to know more about our international listeners or, yes. as, Matt w- or as Matt would call them, our un-American listeners. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you. To- we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank- Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.